Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special New York City Marathon preview edition of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. This is Jonathan Galt. I'll be joined shortly by my co-hosts and Let's Run.com co-founders, Robert and Weldon Johnson. I'll be seeing them very soon in New York City for a great race this weekend. We're going to talk a lot about New York, about Jeffrey Camworo, Lisa DeCisa, Mary Catani, all your favorites. We're going to also talk a little ultra marathoning. Camille Heron taking down the women's 24-hour record for the second year in a row. Really impressive stuff out in France. Uh, we're going to talk a little shoes because that's what everyone talks about these days in the running world. Uh, maybe talk about Olympic logos. You Usain Bolt to the NFL. We're going to touch on a little bit of everything today. But let's start with what Weldon Johnson would say is the race to determine the greatest runner of all time, the New York City Marathon. How excited are you, uh, New York correspondent Weldon? Yes, very, very excited. You know, whoever wins New York is automatically runner of the year. And if American wins it, they're the GOAT. So a lot on, at stake this weekend. Well, let's get our Alberto Salazar mentioned out of the way early. He won New York three times. So does that mean he's the, the American GOAT, Weldon? Or are you not ready to give him that title? Most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, it doesn't get any better than Alberto. Alberto, we miss you. Please come back. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, four years. Can, can he come back in four months? It's just so boring without Alberto. You think he's listening to the podcast? Alberto, the, the, the guest hosting slot is still available. It's just right there for you. If you guys aren't regular listeners to the show, there's been a lot of sarcasm in the early going, but excited to be here, guys. Can I hop in and brag about myself? I thought last week was one of the greatest weeks of my life. Well, I mean, the podcast exists for a, to give Robert a platform to brag about himself, so I'd be remiss if we don't give you this opportunity, Rojo. Well, first of all, we said we're going to talk about shoes, and I listened to the Science of Sports podcast with Ross Tucker, and it was amazing. He said he would not hesitate to say the Nike Vaporflies are mechanical doping, so that gives me ammunition in my goal, my long-held goal, to get the 2016 Olympic marathon results invalidated. So now that I have scientific backing for my for my argument, I'm pretty excited about that. Plus, I exclusively have broken the story this week about the father-son marathon world record. The, the Hughes family, Tommy and Ian Hughes of Ireland, incredible running, by the way, in Frankfurt. They ran 459.22 to beat the Guinness record of 502.11. That's 459 for a father-son in the same race, not lifetime PRs. A 59-year-old man, Tommy, who was an Olympian for Ireland, ran 227.52. Think about that for a minute. Age 59, world record. Amazing. And then uh, Ian ran 231.30, 34. But I figured out that that is not the real record. Jared Kolbeck and Fernard Kolbeck in the uh, 80s ran faster back in France. So big week for Rojo. Yeah, I mean, when Rojo says he broke the story, it's really like, the actual people involved in breaking the record, uh, wh- who was it? Fernando. It was the son who emailed you, right? Gerard. Um, he found out on the message board and emailed us, but Robert, you know, he translated that and, uh, pervade, he gave the news to the masses. So I'll definitely give you credit for it. It was a definitely a very interesting story in the week that was that you guys should read on let's Key part of a journalist is having the trust of your sources. John, he expressed, he, ex- he trusted me to publish these family photos and, get it out to the masses. But I was riding high until Sunday morning and something terrible happened. I, I faced my own mortality. I don't even know Weldon even knows about this. I think John may have heard this story. Well, four of my ex-Cornell athletes, I coached for 10 years at Cornell University. 
four of them came down to the greater Baltimore, D.C. area to run the Marine Corps Marathon. All of these guys are still in their 20s, I believe, and they were all pretty good runners. Well, then, uh, do you want me to, get the, to tell you their names? You might know who they were, uh, give you credentials. I want you to make some predictions of what they ran in this race. Go ahead. Do you want? Should I mention their names, or is that unfair, John? Is that like doxing somebody? I feel like you're just shaming your old runners by doing this. I wouldn't mention the names. Okay, I won't mention names. One of them was like a 14, 15, 29, 30 type guy. One of them ran um, 4.17 in the mile in high school. It was more of an 800 guy for me. He ran 149 on a relay. Um, another guy was an 8.59 steeplechaser. And the last guy, the youngest of the group, was one of the most talented guys I ever coached. Ran 148 for me as a freshman um, in the 800. Also ran like 4.15 as a mile, where I think is like a freshman in high school. Quite good. Big, huge talent. So they all ran the Marine Corps Marathon, well then, all in their 20s. Please predict the fastest time and the slowest time. Wait, I think I heard one of them ran five hours. I did see something or a reference to that. That's nuts. I assume the fastest has got to be, well, if they're all going to go do it, of course someone's going to run under three, I'd feel like. But I'm going to say no. I'm going to go like 3.30 to five hours because I'm already shocked that somebody ran five hours. Yeah, it, it was brutal. 318 was number one. But that was the 859 steeper. 351, oh no, 318, excuse me, was for the uh, the 2930 guy. 351 for the, uh, I think that was the the uh, 859 steeper. 408 for the 149 guy and 458. He did break five for the 148 meter runner. All right. Well, guys, if you're wondering, uh, listeners, where the culture of shaming hobby joggers comes from, it's here's your answer right at the top. If you're a former runner and you lapse into hobby jogger territory, Robert is going to call you out on the podcast. No, I'm not. I'm actually, this has inspired me because I, I would joke like, oh, you know, I probably couldn't break double my marathon PR. I probably couldn't break that. That would be four, uh, 46. And, and now I, I have. Proof that there's no way I could break five hours. If this kid's not breaking five hours, there's no way I could. So how does that inspire you? Well, my goal is to break three again. Can I do it in one year? Is that even possible? Oh, yeah. Wait, hold on, Robert. Last week on the podcast, you said you were going to run five times this this past week. Did you do that? Are you a man of your word? No, I, I was going to originally quintuple my mileage from one and a half to two miles a week to about 15 i guess that'd be seven times i was going to run to work every day but i decided that was way too much to do it every day so i only ran twice last week i did double my mileage this week i'm going to run three times hopefully so i'm I'm going to be up to about 10 miles this week break three are you crazy nuts i mean come on that's sub seven minutes for the whole marathon there's no way i ran a marathon that's the crazy thing. I don't know what, how many, maybe five years ago, I ran 258 and I was playing soccer and sort of training for it. And I don't know. I'm way fitter than you. You're not breaking three. You, you, I mean, I guess I assume you could break 330. But if you, man, I think New York, here's what we should do. But for this weekend, John, we get him a charity spot in this year's New York City Marathon. No, no, not this year. That's not fair. But what I do think is in order... We need to have a bet here. Robert needs to commit to a marathon at the end of 2020, maybe like CIM, 2020 CIM. That's a nice fast course. And we put a time goal on the line. There's a little bet between the brothers, some bragging rights, so public shaming might be involved. I think that would be pretty exciting. 
No, John, we need him running this Sunday's New York City Marathon. How could we get the Let's Run audience behind him? Like, what's the bet? We raise money for charity somehow. Like, what would be feasible? I mean, Robert would have to go out there and suffer and possibly die. But where would you set the line? 430, maybe? I mean, he, Robert doesn't run. Like The other guy just ran a 458. The 148-800 guy. Yeah, but that's barely... Like, I'm, I'm, I think Robert could break five hours. Come on, that's barely moving. John. Oh, John, you're way underestimating this. I'll, I'll update my Strava thing. I, I haven't even looked at it. I, I ran three miles f- from work, and I'm pretty sure I didn't break 30 minutes, John. And I wasn't carrying anything. I left the computer at home. I think I was carrying my phone and my wallet in my hands. Well, I need to figure out what five-hour pace is because I never – that's not really something I've ever contemplated. That's probably in the 10-minute range, right? Two ideas. I'm more impressed by these people. These, these five-hour people, it's not easy. Okay, well, for the record, five-hour marathon pace is eleven twenty-six per mile, and given Robert's admission that he's you know struggling to run ten-minute miles, maybe that is beyond him. If he just threw him in cold turkey on Sunday, but I do think we should move on to the races people actually do care about, which is the two that are going on in New York on Sunday, men's and women's elite marathon fields. You know, we've looked them over; these are not the greatest fields ever assembled, and. Part of it from an American perspective, I actually think the American fields aren't that bad considering that the Olympic trials are less than four months away now. They're actually, yeah, yesterday was the four month to go uh, date, uh, October 29th. And, you know, the trials are on February 29th. But at the very top, you know, they're fairly shallow. The men's field, we have the top four from last year returning. So that would be Lisa DeCisa, your champion, Shura Katada, the running runner up, Jeffrey Camwaror and Tamarat Tola. That was the top four. And on the women's side, there's Mary Katani, who was the four-time New York champion, including last year. And then Ruti Aga, who is a 218 Ethiopian marathoner. She won Tokyo earlier this year. You've also got the debut from Jocelyn Jepkosgai, who is the half marathon world record holder. So certainly some intrigue, but beyond that top group, there isn't really that many people capable of winning the race. Let's start with the men. Robert Weldon, tell me who you feeling. Is there someone you feel really good about out of this group? John, I'm going to jump in first with a bigger picture sort of point. I think the marathon, I kind of joke. I'm like, oh, these fields are like ultra marathoning. I feel like there's one or two guys who can win. And then I'm like, oh, New York's kind of that this way in general. But maybe I'm not that far off because a lot of these fields, a lot of the people are window dressing. I think there's four guys who can win on the men's side in New York and three guys in the women's. Wait, there's three guys that can win the women's race? Excuse me. Four guys who can win the men's race and three who can win the women's. I think unless something crazy happens. And most marathons really probably aren't that much different than that. I mean, some of the exceptions might be some of the non-majors where they bring in a host of like 206 guys. And some of this is just limited by the number of guys you're bringing in. If you bring in three pretty good guys, like those are three guys who can win your race. So... I think part of the problem with ultras, I'm like, wait, only one or two guys can win this thing. And then I'm kind of joking, like, well, wait, for marathons, three or four guys can win. I think most races outside of maybe London are that way. You could argue London's that way too, because you bring in Bekele, who's going to really beat him? I mean, excuse me, Kipchoge. So the fields aren't that deep, but they're pretty strong up front. I mean, well, I mean, I don't know. On the women's side, you got three people and one's never run a marathon. But, you know, when, when Sarah Hall now is your fifth fastest per person in the field, it's just a different feel about the field, right? 
Yeah, I, I don't want to start off too negative and, and, and damper. I mean, I'm very excited about this weekend. John, we just published the men's preview. It, it, it does, it's been an amazing year of marathoning. So much has gone on. And it should be a, a great race because there's four studs in the men's race, three studs in the women's race. But I, I will say something negative. I just don't know how in this day and age with so many talented marathoners, you only have four sub-208 men in, in New York. I mean, every year I compile the stats – how many sub 205s, 206s, 207s for all the majors. I'll have to update to see how many actually started them. But I was looking at the spreadsheet where I had the tentative entries. And the first three majors of the year, London, Tokyo, and Boston, all had double digits, 10, 12, and 10 for sub 207 guys. New York only has four. I mean, that to me is is kind of crazy. Um, here's a question for you guys. Guess how many men this year, this year, have broken 206 in the world? I'm going to say like 35. Wow, John, this is why we hired you. 31 men have broken 206 in the year. And yet they, they you know, I guess there's seven majors. So you, you, but that would be, then you could have four guys that have done it this year. You know what I'm saying? If you, if you divided those evenly, but there's only, even if you just split those, there's only three majors in that, in this half of the year. So, you know, you'd I think you'd have six, seven or eight. So the good thing is we know that Cam Ward's in shape. He just ran a half marathon world record. Decisa won the world championships, but but imagine if one of those guys is off their game, it, it could be very shallow up front. Well, yeah, I imagine, I imagine chances are someone's probably going to be off their game. I mean, Decisa, we need to give this guy. I don't know if he's crazy or brilliant. He is trying to win New York twenty eight days after he won the world championship marathon. This has never been done in the history of the sport. No one's run New York, won New York after running Worlds, especially with Worlds being that quick, you know, such a quick turnaround. So that's insane. But it obviously it also means his potential for dropping out, I think, is a lot higher because you know he might not be recovered properly. It is a super quick turnaround, I guess. I mean, I what the quickest ever. But I think at Worlds, John, we thought Decisa wouldn't do that well. That he'd be focused on New York. I mean, there's more money there, appearance fees, that sort of stuff. So his focus was on New York. So say you're preparing for New York, and as part of your training, you do this other marathon it goes really well, is that going to hamper your training for New York? And then the other thing to factor in is the shoes. The, supposedly the recovery is much easier. I mean, Sarah Hall's bouncing back from Berlin running this race. And these new shoes, they limit, you know, the body doesn't have to do what it once did with the Achilles tendon, the arch, all of these things are being suppressed by the shoes. So I think recovery might be a bit easier coming back from these might be a bit easier. So I'm definitely not going to rule them out from doing really well here. I just, if you were fit a month ago, I think today's technology, what we know about training, you can be a fit a month later. I mean, that's just sort of crazy. Then I guess you could argue, you could run a marathon every month, which obviously wouldn't be the case, but I expect him to be a factor is what I'm trying to say. I do too. It's funny. Just really what convinced me more than anything, I think was just talking to him in the mix zone in Doha and watching his interview with you. Well, then, he was just like, he didn't view it as an issue at all. He was just, you asked him, is it going to be a problem bouncing back from New York? And he's like, no, no, I'll just take a week off and then I'll recover and I'll be fine. And he even mimicked, he sort of had this hybrid dancing slash jogging motion that he did in the mix zone, which I just found hilarious. But yeah, you know, I think he'll be okay. And this is a guy who, if he finishes the race, he very rarely f- runs bad marathons. He's run He's finished 13 marathons in his career, and he's finished in the top three in 12 of them. This guy's an absolute stud. But then we've also got some really other good guys. I mean, we talked about how it's a bit shallow, but like 
last year's field wasn't that much deeper and we still had an amazing race. We had three guys run 206, 26 or faster. They were all in contention in the final mile in Central Park. It was an amazing ending to last year's New York City Marathon. So if we can get another one of those, sign me up. And I think, obviously, Jeffrey Cam Warrell, he just ran 58.01 in the half marathon. That has me really excited for what he can do in New York. Is the course record 205.06 from Joffrey Mutai 2011? Do we think that's under threat given that the forecast is calling for 52 degrees high on Sunday? It looks like really good running weather. Yes, John. I think there's a chance that both course records go down, particularly since I'm obsessed with the shoes. Um, the only thing that's got me a little bit worried about the, about the weather is the wind. It's coming out of the northwest. And this this course, you know, is probably a net from south to north more. It's probably like it probably finishes about 12 or 13 miles north of where it started. You know, so I, I think that the wind could hamper them a little bit. But 205, think about that. That's pre-vapor fly. So, uh, you know, I think if Camwar if I was him, I, I would want to run a fast time. Just go out and slam it down. The problem is with no rabbits, you know, it, it, we don't know what, what's going to happen there. But um, that would be amazing to see, you know, absolutely amazing. So, John, have we mentioned the names of the four big guys? We've got Jeffrey Camor. Um, you know, the, the big thing this year is he did not do the Worlds in 10,000. He's, he's gone all in on the marathon. we got the half marathon world record. You know, will he run better than ever in New York? He's, he's done the – well, there, former champion there, Shura Katata, um, second in London in New York last year, fourth in London this year, 204.49 PR. We mentioned Decisa and then the other elite top guys, Tamara Toa, um, fourth last year in New York, sixth in London in, in April. He's actually got the fastest PR, 204.06. And Tola has run some good half marathons in this buildup. If you look in Bogota in July, you know, he, he it wasn't a fast time because it was at 8,600 feet, but he beat down, uh, Lawrence Chirono, who won Boston and London this year, he beat him by about 90 seconds. So that was really impressive. And then, you know, he, we've show, he's silver medalist in the World Championship Marathon. I mean, he was fourth last year and fa- a fairly distant fourth, but certainly I think he's capable of something good. And he ran 59-13 at the Great North Run. That's, you know, it's not Cam Warrior-esque, but it, he's certainly fit. So I think any of those four guys could win. Then you've also got sort of a dark horse, Albert Correa. He's run 208.03, so not the sexiest time, but he has won Houston and he's won Ottawa this year. I do like guys who win marathons. Uh, that's obviously a good sign, but you know he hasn't really shown to be on that level uh, of the top guys just yet. It's kind of crazy in today's age that we're talking about a 208 guy. 208 is not a world-class marathon anymore. Uh, I mean, listening to that Science of Sports podcast, if people are interested in the shoes, it's very interesting. But I don't know, take a minute and a half, two to three minutes off. What would you consider an old top-notch time? So 208, assuming he's running in the new shoes, new technology, it's like a 210. And maybe he ran, you know, I guess he ran those times this year. So I'm assuming he's in the new shoes. But like, uh, yeah, I just wish New York would bring in like one or two more 205 guys at least. Because just at least for the optics. I mean, I assume the four guys can stay together, you know, going up first ab and that sort of thing. But if you bring in a couple more guys, just for the optics of, of TV, if you have a big pack, say the pace is quick. If the pace is slow and everyone's together, it still looks good. But I don't think it looks good just to have like three guys running alone for 15 miles or so, which could happen if the top four go after it. So bring in a couple more guys, but I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just for optics on TV if you have some 206 guy, but it's kind of crazy that the fifth best guy is a 208. 
Well, yeah, let's talk about the Americans for a minute here. Uh, we, I mean, we've got some other de- interesting international athletes, a couple Australians who've run, Brett Robinson's run 210 and Jack Rayner's run 211. They both ran that. That was their first marathon finish in London for both of them earlier this year. So they're coming in. They've got some potential. Uh, Steven Sambu, former University of Arizona star, he's entered. And we've got a guy actually... Yoshiki Takanuchi, who is bouncing back. He was sixth at the Japanese Olympic trials, which was, you know, middle of September, and he's running the race as well. So, you know, that, that's, you know, I, they're not going to, I don't think they're going to be on the podium, but they should certainly battle out with some of the top Americans. Uh, and I think really the top American, to me, it's fairly simple. It probably, it's going to be Jared Ward unless something goes wrong. Uh, most of the serious contenders for the Olympic team are not running New York this year because. Well, for one reason, a lot of them, some of them ran Chicago, but also, you know, there's only four months until the Olympic trials. But Jared was pretty open. He said, you know, he's got a family of four, or, uh, sorry, four kids to support. Uh, he's doing this in part for the payday, but I think also in part is he's been running really well in the marathon recently. You know, he was the top American in New York last year. He ran 209 in Boston this year. And his thinking, I think, is, he wants to strike while the iron is hot. He has run the Olympics already. Not that he doesn't want to run them again, but if he thinks he can run something special and he's in shape to do it, then he's going to go and run New York. And I think, like we said, you know, if one or two of the top guys have an off day, there's no reason why Jared Ward couldn't be that guy to step up and, and finish third and you know accomplish one of his big goals, which is a world marathon major podium finish. That's one of his major goals is a world marathon major podium finish. So if he pays David Monty enough just to have three elite Kenyans and one of them drops out, then he's top three. Um, I mean, Jared's a, a, a great marathoner, and I think he's definitely going to be the top American. And, you know, I, I don't think it's really going to jeopardize his Olympic trials chances too much in the sense of, I mean, look at Molly Huddle. She ran the Valencia half last weekend voluntarily. She didn't run a fall marathon, but she, she's now going to take her break. So she's only a week behind him. Um, in, in terms of, you know, a week ahead of him in terms of, in terms of you know, taking their breaks and everything like that. Big week for Jared. He was on Shark Tank last Sunday, this Sunday, New York City Marathon. So pretty cool week for him. And his company got offers. They, they got a bunch of offers from the Sharks and they took one of them. So uh, they got $150,000 in fund. Oh, sorry, $150,000 for uh, 5% of the company. Yeah, so John, you watched the whole show t- to take us through it. So basically, those of you who don't know what Jared's, I don't know if he's invented it or there was also the former 800 meter runner for BYU on the, on the team. Right. Yeah. Shaquille Walker. And they, they, I was really impressed by their presentation. Actually, there was a lot of energy. There was some joking, which uh, Jared likes to joke a little bit. So I thought that came across well, but they've invented this little ball. It's, it looks like a, it's the size of a dodgeball about, and essentially it's supposed to replace sort of a foam roller and you can, roll it around on your body and it vibrates and heats up. So it's supposed to be better than just a traditional foam roller and sort of rolling out kinks and muscles, that sort of thing. John, I don't know what a dodgeball size is. It's basically like a softball, right? When Weldon was training, we all had softballs and we would just roll around on that. It's a heated softball. No, it's bigger than a softball. Oh, okay. Don't, you don't wait. Have you never played dodgeball as a kid, Robert? I mean, I feel like people know what size a dodgeball is. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you were sheltered. I'm, I'm not really sure, but, uh, John, we grew up in Texas. You know, sometimes you're using rocks, sometimes you're using boulders, sometimes you're using, I guess, official dodgeballs that you guys had in England and and in Patrician Boston. But you know, Texas is a little bit different. Okay, I mean, I thought dodgeballs is about as American as it comes. I thought Texas was America, so I don't know. Anyway, it, it looked like an interesting invention. They were sort of pitching it, and 
they were saying that the price is like $160, but it only costs $40 to make. And so that was sort of the source of some controversy because Mark Cuban, who's one of the sharks, really liked that idea. Uh, he was like, oh, yeah, make as much money as you can. And then some of the other ones were like, no, you got to lower the price point. You'll sell more. So it was interesting, but they got a bunch of offers and uh, they took one of them. So congrats to them. But, you know, he's got a race to run now. I think John left that one key part, though. It was $150,000. But they also have to give the, the owner, the new investor, $1 for every for the first 500,000 balls that they sell. That's right, you know. So uh, to me, but if you if you're making a margin of $120 per ball, I mean, that's not that big a, you know, cost to sink in, I don't think. Wait, you said 5% for 150 grand, so this is a, you know, multiplied by 20, this is a $3 million company. One could reach that conclusion. Well, it's interesting. They were asking 150k for 10% of that company and they then got the offer changed they the Sharks liked it so much that they were like, no, we'll only take 5%, but we want the royalty. So, yeah, let, let's uh, look at some of the other Americans. And, you know, Jared Ward is not the only American running it. We've got Abdi Abdurrahman, still out there trucking at age 42. His last few marathons haven't gone that well, but he was the top American in New York in 2016 and 2017. Uh, we've got Tyler Pinnell, who I think is ready for a bounce back. I read this article, Race Results Weekly had a feature on him. Says he's essentially been injured for the last, you know, couple of years. But remember, this is a guy. He was fifth at the Olympic trials in 2016. He made the rate, the move in the second half of the race to sort of break up the field. Finished eighth in New York that fall. He was fourth in Boston last year in the bad weather year. So I, I think this is a guy who's primed to run well and so could. So his PR is only two thirteen thirty two, but I think if we get good luck weather, he could lower that and maybe, you know, maybe he. I think he's the guy out of anyone who could run something on Sunday that sort of announces himself as an Olympic, a serious contender for the Olympic team. And then you've got a couple longer shots, interesting stories. Joe Whelan, he's, you know, this guy's raced, this is his seventh marathon of 2019. That's according to Tillis Tapaja. I mean, maybe they have some that he hasn't even run that they missed. But, yeah, he ran 218 uh, on October 13th, so just three weeks before the race. But he essentially just does a marathon like every weekend and, training he says so and he's he's a guy he's very blue collar he'll run like 10 hour days working like on a ranch and working with chainsaws in texas so you know very blue collar guy and then Connor mcmillan uh the byu alum he was fourth at usa's in the 10,000. he's now training with jared ward and with the uh, ncaa 10k champ clayton young out in provo and ai stone says you know he's he's not that far behind jared ward in, in workouts they're obviously not quite on the same level but he thinks he could run about 212 on Sunday. So he's, he's a guy to sort of watch out for as well. Yeah, when I read that, 212 in New York, I mean, that would be very impressive. So, it, you know, it's, it's exciting to see those guys. Um, you know, I mean, I think New York is very good at crafting stories. They've got enough Americans to make it interesting, enough elites to make it interesting. They've got a feature on the wheelchair guy. Roman, what's his name, John? He's in the Wall Street Journal right now. Yeah, Daniel Romanchuk. Which is crazy. By the way, I read something about him this week. Do you guys realize this is why wheelchair racing, I don't know, it's just, it's inspiring, you know, but it's just the fact that you can win like all the majors in a given year and also be, he's the world record holder in the 800 meters. He's the best marathon in the world and he's the world record holder in the 800 meters. Like, it's just, it's just, I don't know, it's crazy. It's just like Sifan Hassan, not much difference, man. Touche, touche. Yeah, I mean it's it's a different sport. We kind of we all acknowledge that. Um, all right, any other last thoughts on the men's field before we go to the women? I breaking news, guys. 
I don't know if you guys are aware of this. The media center is different at the finish of this year's New York City Marathon. Have you guys heard this? No. It is no longer two stories. Oh, wow. We've lost an, a deck of the finish line pavilion at the New York City Marathon. Last week, I was running by, in case you guys don't know, the New York City Marathon finishes right next to the famous restaurant Tavern on the Green. And in one of the greatest human feats of engineering, they set up a pavilion. It's, it's a portable structure at the finish. And they have you know room for probably couple hundred maybe 500 people can come in there and you can buy gear and they have like talks and lectures and you know the day of the race sponsors are in there and they've also always had an upstairs media room it's like a two-story structure just built for the race i'm like how many hundreds of thousands of dollars are spent on this thing it's amazing they can just put it up and put it down but it's running by this past week and the second story is gone now maybe there's a chance it would get built st- Later in the week, I don't think so though. I think it, so. Maybe John, we're going to be in there on the first floor, and they're just going to utilize the space better. And the press conferences are compressed this year; they're all on the same day, so maybe they're just going to utilize the space and save some money, which might make sense. But hey, cutbacks, cutbacks, John. New York City media representatives, if you're listening to this podcast, which I imagine you are, we're not fans of you putting all the elites again on one day at one one hour. It doesn't make sense. You used to have like. International men one day in the morning, international women in the evening, afternoon, the U.S. women in the morning, and the U.S. Please space it out over two days. And also, please do not start at 10 a.m. It costs us another day for New York City hotels. <laughs> so please start everything after 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 tw- at 1 p.m. and please spread it over two or three days. Thank you very much. The silver lining, Robert, is that uh, there's now no press conferences on Friday, which means we get to go to the biggest race of the entire weekend, the HEPS Championships at Van Cortlandt Park. I, I haven't seen a 7,000-word preview yet on the website. Do we have one brewing? What, what can you tell me about HEPS, Robert? Princeton, baby, the alma mater will dominate yet again. I can now root for them. Unlike Cornell, when I tried to prevent kids from going to Princeton for 10 years, I expect them to win on the men's side, but we, we, we'll see. Um, I will be having an autograph session from 10.30 to 11 before the first race. Only $5 each. It's kind of crazy to hear Robert rooting for Princeton. I mean, when we were in college, I ran at Yale. Robert went to Princeton and didn't run, and he rooted for Yale. And then after college, next thing I know, Robert's the head cross-country coach at Cornell, or I guess assistant at first, then cross-country coach at Cornell, and had quite a run there. But it was like, Cornell, 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 I hate Princeton. And now it seems like he's thrown Cornell under the bus, and he just roots for Princeton because they're good. It's, It's like Judas a bit. I don't know. Well, then it's quite simple. Robert had success at Cornell, but he never won the Heps cross country. And he doesn't want to see his successor come in and do something he could never do because it would show his failings as a coach. So I, I think I've solved the case right there. It wouldn't show my failings as a coach. And the current coach there agrees with me that any given year, Princeton should win at least three of the five titles um, just based on the on the recruits that they get. Back in the day, maybe Columbia would win one just because they were going all in on distance, but now they're no longer going all in on distance. They would win one, and the rest of the Ivy League could win one out of a five-year period. Um, but Princeton's probably firing at a higher level than everybody else. Maybe Harvard's coming up a little bit, which may give other Ivies some help. I always hoped when I was at Cornell that Harvard and Princeton would, would sort of split these, these status-conscious kids that all run sub-nine and either th- only think of going to Stanford, Princeton. Um, you know, Maybe some of those Princeton kids go to Harvard, then, then you've got a better shot. Anyways, people don't want to hear us talk about the Ivy League. 
those that do are going to show up at the race. Yeah, remember Robert Johnson autograph session, 10.30, everyone. Uh, let's talk about the women's race. I mean, we have to start the discussion here with Mary Katani, the queen of New York City, 217.01 personal best. That is now oh, it's weird. It's now number three all time because we're in the age where a woman has run 214 for the marathon. But Katani, you know, we we saw last year one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in New York City. She closes the second half, sub 67, just destroys everyone to win that race. And I think what I'm most interested in, well, one, she, you know, she ran okay in London in the spring. You know, she got smoked by Bridget Cosguy, but, you know, it's kind of everyone got smoked by Bridget Cosguy these days. So nothing too embarrassing there. But she has won New York for the last five years. She ran 220 in London earlier this year, 67.58, the Great North Run. So she's 37. Looks like maybe a couple of signs of slowing down a little bit, but I still think it's either her or Ruti Aga, who is the, the Tokyo champ who ran 218 last year. It's going to be one of those two winning. And Katani, I mean, what I'm interested to see is, is this course record finally going to fall? It stood for 16 years now. Margaret Akayo, 222.31 from 2003. I think Katani, no doubt she could have got it last year if they go out a little faster. I mean, Katani ran 222.48. And that's after her first half where they were like close to, it was like 75 minutes or something. It was ridiculous. So the weather looks like it's great. Do we think this course record finally falls? I think it would be appropriate if Mary Katani is the one to get it. You never should say it's easy to break a course record, right? It's stood for 17 years. Is that what you said? 16 years. That's just crazy. I mean, you had Paula Radcliffe run through after that, didn't break it. Marathoning's at a whole nother level now and that it hasn't fallen. So you sh- I guess we should have said it, it won't fall. Um, they've, I guess they just haven't shown a penchant for running fast the whole way in New York. I guess what a couple years ago, Katani went out so ridiculously fast the first half and faded, and she, she's sort of learned her lesson and flipped the script in the years since. But if we got an honest pace at the beginning, yeah, of course the record should go um, where marathoning is now. I, I think the record is there to be broken, but with not that many people in the in the women's field, uh, you know, there's two sub two twenty people and the world half marathon record holder. Who's going to push the pace, right? So, I mean, just the odds would say the record actually doesn't fall. But if these women go after it, yeah, it's gone. Well, I'm not convinced of that. I mean, I was going to definitely predict it because Adidas now has their vapor fly out. And we saw that last week in Frankfurt. John, what was the woman's name? Vec, help me out here. Valerie Ayebe. I'm not entirely sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But yeah, 219.10 for the win there. But she, not only, but she went out in 67-something. So basically, she's going on Paul Radcliffe pace. People would have thought that was un- inconceivable. But now she's a woman who runs 17 marathons, goes out in 67-minute pace. She's got the new shoes, and it's not that crazy that, she, that it happens. I do need to stand corrected. I said the week that was she was wearing the Vaporflies. She's not. She's wearing the Adidas version of the Vaporflies, which we have a picture. We're going to put it up in the women's preview of Katani training in, in Kenya. Adidas now has their shoe. So I would think because of the shoes and the talent that the record would go down, but we're ignoring the fact that Katani did not run well recently at all at the great, uh, great North run. I mean, 67, 58 Bridget Coast guy obviously ran 64, 28 in that race, but even Magdalena Masai, who just won Toronto beat her by 22 seconds. So that has me a little bit concerned. 
if Katani's on her game, we'll find out maybe tomorrow at the press conference. Yes, I think the course record could go with the new shoes, but you know, if you if you're if you're off your game and on the on the downside of your career, then no, she's not going to get the course record. Yeah, I think in the battle for the win, I don't really, I don't totally trust Jocelyn Jovkowski. She said she's going to debut a few times, and she's always ended up pulling out. Like, remember, she was supposed to debut this spring, uh, and I think it was in Hamburg. And instead of running that race, she ended up pacing the women's race in London, which was also ridiculous because no one went with them. So she was basically just paid to run like way in front of the field with Southern Rabbit. But yeah, it's the course record that's sort of dependent on yeah, like if Auger and katani decide to go after it but in terms of the win i mean katani she might not have to be at her best rudy Aga, she's really the only other real stud in this field and she she ran the world championships marathon ran quote unquote i think she was probably forced to do it by the ethiopian federation she dropped out early so i'm not really worried about that race taking a toll and i don't think it's a bad sign that she dropped out there she's really a stud i mean she ran she was third in houston in the half earlier this year 66 56 that's pretty good but if you look at her last few marathons, I mean, second in Tokyo in 2018, second in Berlin last year in 218.34, and then second, in, uh, sorry, the win in Tokyo earlier this year. Uh, I think, she, I mean, do we call her the favorite or do we call Katani the favorite? Where are you guys leaning? I just don't even think about it. I go with Katani. She's proven on this course. Yeah, age is catching up to her maybe a little bit, but I, I don't know. I mean, I maybe should look at those results a bit more and say, oh, Katani should get beat. Um, John, you're pretty dismissive of Joyce Lundjipkoski, but she really hasn't done that much this year. I mean, she won the United Airlines half this year, but she hasn't run that fast. She won Beach to Beacon, I think. A couple years ago, she was just tearing it up on the roads. And maybe the fact that she was going to debut and hasn't debuted. Maybe, John, she felt like she was a disadvantage. I think she, she's an Adidas athlete, right? Right. Maybe what's the point of go running marathon if you think, hey, I'm, I'm at a two-minute disadvantage to somebody. So, I mean, seriously, you got to think about that. I don't think... I, I feel th- like that's a, that's a conspiracy theory. I feel like that's sort of, you're just speculating right now. But jo- jo- we got we got to get to the point, and maybe we can... Do you want to talk about shoes now, or are we sort of... Well, then, if we're going to talk about the shoes, one thing, we can't just go everything. The problem with the shoes is, and the problem with IWF not enforcing these rules is, we don't know what to think. I mean, the reality is, Jocelyn Jepkoski did set the half marathon world record, not even wearing a vapor fly or anything like a vapor fly. That's true. Tony Ravis had an article on his blog, and it was great. Essentially, he's like, do we want to be like NASCAR? Or Essentially, he said NASCAR decided not to be it. It's all about the technology. It's about like who's the best driver, like who, not who has the best tires. It's like create a level playing field and make it so that it's level. Instead of people are coming out with some new shoe the day before a race, you know, they need to have a system that makes a consistent I mean, fine, maybe the record book won't be consistent if we allow this technology to, to continue going forward. But we're discussing the wrong thing right now. Running used to be pretty simple and field and that sort of stuff. It's not like who has the best shot put. It's like who's the best shot putter, not who has the best shoes. It's who's the best runner. And I feel like some of that's being lost here. So it is stupid for me to say Chip Ghost Guy didn't make her marathon debut because of these shoes, the more I think about it. But... If you didn't have these shoes, you're you were at a disadvantage. And Mary Katani dominated this race without these shoes. It just shows the greatness of her. We want it level going forward, and I I, I guess people are probably sick of us talking about this. But I'm going to link to the Science Sport podcast in the show notes. You guys should listen to that if you want much more detail on these shoes. 
Yes, the Science of Sports podcast. Again, we've talked about Mike, Mike Ross Tucker, the sports scientist, is on there. Mike Finch is the South African journalist that also co-hosts the show with him. But this week they had Jeff Burns, the uh, PhD candidate in America, who's also a pretty good marathoner. You know, I think he does a lot of ultras, 223 marathoner, I know is his PR. But it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. We're going to put it in the show much. You know, you, you need to see it. It's not just the carbon plate. It's really the foam is the key. I mean, the the, the standard EVA foam returns about 60% of your energy. The Adidas Boost foam returns about 70%, mid 70% of your energy. And this new PBAX foam returns high 80% in terms of energy, which is just significantly better th- than anything else that's that's been out there. All right. This might not be the end of shoe talk on this uh, on this podcast, but... I do want to address some of the Americans because if you look at the start list, I mean, you've got Katani and Arco who are sort of way clear of everyone else. Then you've got Nancy Kiprop. She's 40 years old from Kenya and she's coming off a win and a PR in Vienna earlier this year. She's around 222. Uh, and then after that, it's two Americans. It's Sarah Hall and it's Des Linden. And Sarah Hall, I think, is one of the most intriguing stories in this race. You know, Last year, I don't think people were looking at her. They were like, oh, well, she's she's doing pretty well. She's running some PRs. She won CIM a couple of years ago. You know, she's making progress as a marathoner, but I don't think anyone really thought of her as like, wow, this one's this one's really like, you know, she's a really serious top-tier threat to make the Olympic team. But now we have to view her that way. She ran 222 in Berlin, and that was only five weeks before New York. And then she's coming. She ran one week after winning Berlin. She ran the U.S. 10-mile champs and won those. And now she's running New York and then she's going to run the trials. But I mean, I think she it's going to be a good battle between her and Des Linden, who, you know, Des is as consistent as they come. She's sixth in New York last year, fifth in Boston this year. We know she's going to bring a, a good steady marathon. And that's really, that's a good measuring stick, I think, for Sarah Hall. But, you know, in speaking to Sarah yesterday, I spoke to her and her, her coach and husband, Ryan. They said they're not really worried about the outcome. I mean, New York is just, a chance for them to run a trial, a course similar to the one they'll f- face for the trials. It's going to be no rabbits. There's hill. It's hilly. She just said she wants to get an experience racing on that course, and she's not really locked in. She's not worried about place or time. She just wants to get experience. But I think we've show- she's shown she can bounce back well. We know she's fit. I think we're probably going to see a pretty good race out of her, and she could definitely finish as a top American. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, she's in great form. I, I kind of expect her to be the top American. I think Des Linden, I don't know. I mean, I think she's sort of not, not, not just on the backside of her career, back nine of her career. I, I think she's, you know, ending, walking up the final fairway, um, you know, already been eliminated from contention in the Masters, but it's kind of like Jack Nicholas just, you know, waving to the patrons one last time. I mean, I, I don't expect her to be at the Olympic trials. I think she's already signaled that basically hasn't been an official, but I'd be shocked if, if she's on the Olympic team or even at the trials. But John, the person, I don't even think you've mentioned him yet again, take Kaylin Taylor of the Hogan NAU team. Uh, you, you consistently ignore her. She's run through 24, 29. Um, I think that she would be the one that would battle hall for, for top American honors. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Once again, Kellen, Kellen Taylor getting slighted. Was she Kellen Johnson? She, she was. That was her maiden name. Johnson was? Johnson was her maiden name, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll take credit for her. A fellow Johnson, because IWF still lists her as Johnson, you know, in the results database. John, once again, just totally ignoring her. I, I, I just don't get it. Like, I'm going down the list of PRs, and hers is after those other two. She's at 224. Kellen Taylor, let me clarify, she's absolutely 
in the discussion for tough American woman in that race. She would easily, I think it's probably looking at the field. It's a three horse race between her Hall and Linden. And I think, I don't think it's bad to pick any one of those three. Till Berlin this year. There's no question. Kellen Taylor is a better track runner than Sarah Hall yep. and a better, and a better marathoner. Yes, absolutely. Now Sarah runs this one good marathon. And you're like, whoa. And Sarah's had great success at any on the roads from anything from the mile up to the marathon. I mean, she's won U.S. titles, but you can win a U.S. title in the marathon and not be a great, great marathon or not world class. But her times were never that fast. And then in Berlin, it's like 222. And you're like, whoa. And then you start thinking, okay, she's got the prototype shoe. But also, the more I think about it, it's sort of interesting. I think Sarah Hall is like her husband. I think the marathon's her best. It might be her best distance. You know, she she was late coming to the marathon. She's had great road success, but she really hasn't run the marathons until the last couple of years. So it could be her best distance. And then once again, you know, she's got a prototype shoe, which is going to help the times. Yeah, well, then I do think the marathon is Sarah Hall's best event. And it's interesting because I was talking to both the Halls yesterday and they're saying that Ryan, you know, he was a natural. He was clear. He was born to run the marathon. He said he had to, you know, even in high school, he'd run like 10 mile tempos at sub five pace and no problem for him. But getting that speed for the 5K and stuff, that was what he really struggled for, struggled with. Whereas Sarah, she has great natural speed, but she's really what's allowed her to sort of develop in the marathon is she can, she's been trying to add a lot of aerobic strength. And she, I don't think she realized how much strength she actually could add by continuing to train in the marathon. She basically just says, yeah, every marathon goes a little bit better. Um, every marathon buildup, I feel like I've gotten about a minute faster in the marathon. And so she just, I don't think she realized when she switched the marathon, how much she could develop her aerobic capacity. And that's been a very pleasant surprise for her. But obviously I have to give credit to Kellen Taylor. I mean, 224, she ran at grandma's last year. And I think after her year this year, I mean, getting third in 10,000 at USA, she almost beat Emily Sisson. I talked to her coach, Ben Rosario, and he said that her stretch of training in September was as good as any stretch she's ever had. She had a bit of a stomach bug and it caused her to bail out of a half marathon. Then she ended up running the half, the 10 mile champs. She didn't run well there because she wasn't totally over it. Um, But I think Kellen Taylor, she clearly has to be taken seriously as a major threat, both at the trials and and in this race to be the top American. I agree, but if she's not running in the good shoes, who knows what to believe. And think about if Sarah though, Sarah doesn't, she's running in a prototype ASIC shoe, but she claims it's not like the Vaporfly. Imagine if she put on the vapor flies, would she break 222? That's where the problem with these shoes is. We don't know. Moving forward, we need to have a rule, an emergency rule. If it's not commercially available by January 1st, it should not be in the Olympics if they can't figure out a rule before then. But guys, here's the stat of the week. I mean, basically earlier in the show, sorry, Des, if you're listening to this, but I basically wrote her off as sort of like Jack Nicholas taking one final walk down, down, that, you know, down, the, down the fairway. Uh, stat of the week, Sarah Hall, like, it's like she's coming into her own. Her career is new. I mean, Ryan Hall has been retired for years. Sarah Hall is 102 days older than Des Linden. Yeah, but I mean, if you if you had to bet who's going to run the faster marathon the next couple of years, I think you would have to say Sarah Hall. She's trending upwards, right? Oh, yeah. I think if Sarah Hall is like just starting her marathon career, it's so exciting. Like, I mean, she's literally somehow hit the fountain of youth at 36 years of age. She's right today. She, April 15th, 1983 is her birthday. She's 36 years, 198 days old today. Wait, so can you guys you guys keep alluding to the fact that you think Des Linden's not going to run the trials? Can you guys give me some evidence for that? I just sort of take it for granted. I don't think the Let's Run audience knows the details of this clearly because I don't. 
Well, she she has she's been saying in interviews that the Olympics isn't really that huge motivating factor that it was for her early in her career. Like 2012, she wanted to make the team, which she did, but then she had dropped out early with an injury. So 2016 was about earning redemption and you know redeeming that performance, which she did. She finished in the top ten. She ran well in Rio, but I think she's sort of looking at this point in her career. You know, a she's taking everything one race at a time, and she only wants to run races that she can get excited for. And I think to Des, the idea of running at the Olympics where she's probably not going to win unless everything completely breaks right. And even, even meddling, she'd need everything to pretty much completely break right. And she knows the last couple of years there have been, you know, look at Rio, the gold and silver medalists have since been, you know, pop for doping. I think that's sort of dis- discouraging to her. I think she would rather go and run a race where she, that she enjoys something like Boston or New York or something like that, where, she can get a paycheck out of it and you know she can sort of justify her performances going well rather than just or she would feel better i think about just racing those races and having fun with it than going through the trials she might not even make the team you know i think those are sort of the ideas that she's is percolating in her head yeah i just think what's the upside of making the team and what's the downside of course there'd be nothing really to prevent her from doing the trials and boston assuming she didn't make the team she could just bounce back to boston maybe you know, February 29th, April, you'd have like six weeks or something like that, six, seven weeks. But the other thing, well, that she did on Twitter when they switched the trials from Tokyo to Sapporo, she said something like, oh, I always thought finishing in the Olympic Stadium would be cool to do as an athlete. Because I guess in her other Olympics, they didn't finish in the Olympic Stadium. They were going to do that in Tokyo. But now that's not the case. So with it being in Sapporo. Yeah, it's it's not like she's totally ruled out the trials. I mean, again, she but she's taking things one at a time. It's like Shalane the last few years. Like she's going to run New York. She'll assess how she feels. She might retire after New York. I mean, she's already accomplished a ton. She has her major marathon victory, so she's got that. She can retire with that in her back pocket. But it's really about what excites her. And at this point, you know, making a third Olympic team and then going to you know Tokyo or Sapporo or wherever it is and getting beaten in the heat, maybe that doesn't excite her as much as as retiring or running a different race. Speaking of Sapporo, the news came out, I guess, what, last week that they were going to move the Olympic marathon from Tokyo to Sapporo for cooler weather, which I think is a good thing. But there is sort of a lot of logistical issues, right? Like now the marathon's not going to finish in the stadium. Japan is marathon mad. People had already bought tickets for this thing. But then there's this crazy thing coming out today that or yesterday and the Tokyo officials, I think the mayor or somebody saying it's going to cost them $310 million in lost revenue because the race is moving and expenses. I mean, the figure I think is exaggerated. I think the bigger picture shows that just some of the dysfunction with the Olympics, that they could just move this thing without consultation with the local organizing committee. We criticize some of these sports organizations for not putting athletes first. And I think in this instance, they did put the athletes safety first. It seemed like almost an afterthought in Doha at one point, Sebco, I could look up the exact quote, John, but we're at this press conference, opening press conference. And he's like, of course we think about the athletes, but I kind of remarked to you, like that was sort of said as an aside, not like, Oh yeah, the athletes are the number one priority. It's like, you know, we're just, they're just sort of pawns in the game. I mean, it wasn't that extreme, but it sort of just was like an offhand thing. Oh, well, yeah, of course we think about the athletes. And I feel like by moving the marathon, the IOC was saying athlete safety is first, but I would was shocked now that we're finding out that the Tokyo organizers really weren't consulted on this, or at least they're making it sound like they weren't. Some of the officials, it just seems crazy to me. 
I can't believe Weldon's giving this mayor who said it's going to cost $300 million. He said cost $300 million. You know, they might lose out on some revenue. Somebody on the Let's Run thread on this topic has just talked about how it's not going to cost more than a few million dollars to put on the marathon in Sapporo. It's not going to cost anything. But, yes, there's an opportunity cost and lost revenue. But, yeah, maybe they should talk to the mayor. But they've got to make up their own decision. The mayor's not going to be happy about it. I think it was the right call. We can go over it. People bought tickets. That's unfortunate. In the end, I think that people say they're worried about the athletes. I disagree with that. What they're worried about here is the PR. They, they thought they saw these people collapsing in Doha, and they're afraid. They're, they're very worried about their image. So I don't think it was some grand gesture by the IOC. I think it's them worrying about their, about their image. Actually, all right, speaking of Olympic images, I want to talk about the Paris 2024 logo that was released. Now, I saw this logo, and first of all, when I first saw it, I just thought of it as a flame and nothing else. I didn't even realize the sort of, it could be viewed as a woman uh, or a smiling woman. Obviously, it can if you look at it, but now uh, there's a question about whether it sexually objectifies women, and I just don't see it. I mean, there's a logo of, I guess their argument, I don't understand really the argument. Weldon, do you understand this? Like, Rojo, you want to chime in on this? Is this logo problematic? I believe in today's intersexual, sex, ooh, intersexual. I almost said intersectional world. Uh, John, I'm not allowed to comment on this. I know I'm I'm googling now, trying to figure out how this sexually objectifies women. So maybe we need like a female correspondent. We've been getting calls for that. She could give us the official viewpoint on this. Let me give you my take on this. The first of all, the first logo, the unofficial logo that had a play on the Eiffel Tower in 2024 was perfect. There was no reason to hire a design consultant and make a flame that represents Marianne, which is the, has always been the French heroine or something. It looks like a flame, maybe a little bit like a woman's hair. It doesn't sexually objectify a woman other than to say that a woman, you know, I mean, yes, it's a woman, it's female. So a woman can have sex. A man can have sex. If you go on the internet or Yahoo, you can find somebody who's going to complain about everything. The person that's complaining about it is some feminist scholar, and then I played it up on the message board. So I think we're we're, we're acting like it's a bigger deal than it is. I mean, uh, Robert Fanning, the flames of controversy. There we go. Well, there, I mean, there were people complaining about it. it. Looked like Rachel's haircut and friends. So there were enough people. But any logo that comes out, someone's going to have something funny to say about it on Twitter. And if you, I feel like in journalism, the argument. I thought about just starting a website, like people outraged on Twitter about. X, Y, and Z, like anything you can find. There's enough mil- millions of people in the world to complain about something. Yeah. Well, I like the logo and it actually reminded me, I was looking like at a list of all the Olympic logos from the recent years and looking through it reminded me how bad the London 2012 logo was. I really just, I can't believe they screwed that up so badly. That was a great Olympics, but that logo was so bad. That sexually objectified a woman to me. That looked like a woman performing a sexual act on a man. I still can't believe that was allowed to go. I mean, when, when that came out, I started that thread under a fake name because that was outrageous. It's still some pervert designed that thread and I mean, designed that logo and got away with it. Well, what you need is a focus group of about 13 to 15-year-olds and you just throw any logo you're considering it in front of them. They will find a way to make anything dirty at that age. So if they can't find a way to sort of make it a dirty logo or make jokes about it, then you know you're good. That's the, the teenager test. All right. Let's talk uh, a little bit more running here. Camille Heron, speaking of France, 24-hour world record over the weekend. Uh, 
270 kilometers, I believe. Uh, I, I got to get the exact fraction right. I don't want to uh, shortchange Camille here, but second year in a row that she's broken this record, and she finished sixth overall. This was the I the IAU World 24 Hour Championships. So uh, Camille Heron, you know, she's carried the torch for the United States in the ultra marathoning ranks uh, the last few years. 270.116, which is 167.84 miles. That is 834.9 pace for 24 hours, which is pretty ridiculous, I got to say. But well done. Let me turn it over to you, our ultra marathoning expert. Wow, Johnny, put me on the spot here. I'm definitely not an ultramarathoning expert, but with the Hoka exploration that we did in the, the spring, you know, I, I know more about it. And it's interesting because we, at the time we said, you know, what are the greatest ultramarathons in the world? We came up with some races and uh, I think the IAU 100K championship was one of them. We didn't have the 24-hour championship. So this was actually a world championship. So I didn't really even realize this thing went on because previously, I think when she broke the record, she didn't do it in, in a championship. So it's kind of cool she did a championship. But Steel Town Runner, the true Let's Run ultra marathon expert, emailed us, and at, he's like, you know, essentially saying like this is one of the great records out there. If you compare it to the men's record, it's getting much closer. It's seven percent of Giannis Corris's road record, and eleven percent off his track record. So you're getting, you know, once you're getting seven percent between any men's and women's record, like that's sort of very good. Um, obviously, you know, the 24 hours isn't run all the time. And so maybe the men's record could be improved a bit, but Giannis Corus is like all time great on the men's side. And just, even if you look at this race, like she's the third fastest American man. She'd be the third fastest. She's the third fastest American period for 24 hours, like men or women. So argue what you want. Not many people run this thing or whatever, but it's pretty crazy what she did. If you know, Oh wait, of course she did run in the vapor fly. So Maybe it makes sense that she improved her old record. I wonder what she actually she ran in the old record in. Um, so I, I kind of factored that in a little bit. But she would have been fifth over. I think she was fifth overall in this race. So pretty crazy performance. And, you know, she's a let's run visitor. So pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, remember when, when we when we analyzed the records in the spring, we, we called Yanis Corris' 24-hour record of 303 kilometers, 188.68 miles, the greatest ultramarathon world record. And I said that one of the things that we would always follow is the 24-hour records because to me, that's a very natural event. How far can you run in a day? So if she's 11%, you normally have that 10 to 12% difference. She, you know, 10% would be really good for a woman to be within 11% of what we consider to be the greatest ultra marathon record means she herself is close to it. And, you know, this might be one of the greatest women's records, if not the greatest women's record, we'll have to do a little more analysis of it. And, you know, good for her because she had a tough year. You know, she tried to run Western States and a few of these other races and people kind of, she's just not a great trail runner, but to see her do well, is fantastic. Of course, you know, the vapor flies helped. She went about eight kilometers faster farther this year than last year but still she's really good obviously at the 24-hour distance all right let's go lightning round a couple other things here Usain Bolt I mean whenever he does things this is sort of just noteworthy in the track world and he was talking he had an interesting interview with uh Nick Zaccardi of NBC Olympic talk I thought you know recommend you read that but also he said something to TMZ sports I don't know if he was joking or not but he said that if uh the Green Bay Packers or the Patriots need a wide receiver He's ready to go. He said, if they call me, I'm ready. Told that's TMZ Sports. Uh, didn't mention the Cowboys, America's team, but you guys, you know, I, 
would you be interested in both? We already had this discussion a few weeks ago, so we don't need to spend much time on it. But would you be interested in him as a wide receiver if he uh, Jerry Jones called him up? Absolutely not. The wide receiver diva wide receivers ruin teams. You, you try to you know you get the ball to, to Odell Beckham. Look how good the Browns are doing right now because you have to force them the ball. Same thing with Des Bryant, Terrell Owens. No, we don't need a diva receiver. But this is a joke. I think he just they said. This is like, you know, again, you go onto the internet and you can find someone saying something on Twitter. If you go to St. Bolt and say, hey, do you want to play in the NFL? And he says, yeah, if the Patriots or Aaron Rodgers call me, I'm ready. Like, he's joking. This is not real. Yeah, we, we shouldn't give this any credit. Like, the soccer thing, he at least went and tried out. But, like, there's 0% chance he's St. Bolt's going to the NFL. I mean, it's just not going to happen. He would get the crap knocked out of him. Let's go play like CFL first or something. I mean, it's just, it's just, we shouldn't even take this seriously, but here we are in a podcast, you know, spending time talking about it. And John, the Patriots are the one I think who hired Antonio Brown. They need help at, the, at, at receiver Tom Brady. I heard that the offense doesn't have an identity. You guys are in trouble. Look out week 10. I believe it is Dallas Cowboys coming in town. Yeah. Like I told Weldon, not worried about the Cowboys. They haven't beaten the Patriots since 1996. We just they just traded for Mohamed Sanu to shore up the receiving court. That rookie Nikhil Harry, they're going to bring him up off IR. He'll be all right. So the you know, the Patriots until they lose a game, I don't think I'm even going to be worried right now and they're 8-0 no at the moment. Um let's talk go back to more running news. This is this could be potentially a huge deal. The NCAA uh, announcing it broke yesterday. They're going to allow athletes to profit off their own likeness and sign endorsement contracts without jeopardizing their NCAA eligibility. Now we don't know exactly how all of this is going to work, but to me, this is a massive, massive game changer for the whole NCAA sports model. And are we going to see athletes like Grant Holloway? If he, you know, would he have just stayed in college and run for Florida at a couple meets and still have an Adidas contract next year? Like, how do you guys see this affecting the sport of NCAA track and field? I, I think John's misinterpreting this. I don't think you can be allowed to sign a, a shoe contract. Maybe why shoe. not? Well, I don't know, but this is, I don't have a problem with some of these athletes making a little bit of money on the side off their likeness, but I've never been for paying the college athletes. And I thought Clay Travis on his podcast, on his Paris, on his outkick, the coverage podcast yesterday in Periscope had a perfect solution to this. This is the dumbest controversy. People keep talking about, the NC athletes being exploited. They're not being exploited. The women's soccer player is not exploited. He gets a full ride to go play soccer. The women's cross country runner is not uh, not exploited. Same thing with the volleyballer runner, volleyball players, the men's. The, yes, a few of the Ohio State football players probably could make more money. But the reality is minor league sports do not make much money in the sport. Professional baseball players, AAA, AA, barely make anything. The XFL, CF, whatever, the CFL, they barely make any money. The, there, there's not a huge demand for minor league sports. The demand for that – People go to watch those games because of what's on the front of their jersey, not in the back of their jersey. The simple solution was the NCAA was not the one to blame here. The people to blame here is very, very simple. Was to The people to blame were the NFL and the NBA. The, we, we had a perfect – the fact that they did, have not developed a minor league system for these athletes and have been they've been basically exploiting getting the free labor out of the NCAA. It should have been very clear. When you're a high school senior, do you want to go professional sports? Go pro. But you could do that in the NFL. If you don't, you can go to college for, you know, I, I think it should be a minimum of three years and then you know, whatever. So the option should have been like, you know, maybe, maybe now with the XFL coming up, that can be the minor league for football. So you, you could either go pro coming out of high school or you knew, hey, if I'm not good enough for the pro, you know, maybe maybe pro means 
fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars a year. Well, guess what? Guess how much a college scholarship is worth? It's about fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars a year. So the the real blame here was not the NCA. It was the fact that the NBA and the NFL would not let you go pro out of high school because these teams, the NFL and them, didn't want to have to spend the money to scout high schoolers. Yeah, and John, I think you are misinterpreting. I don't think Zion Williamson can sign a Nike contract and then go. Why not? Eat. I just think that's how the rules is. It's not going to be like that. The sponsorship like that. It's like, you're going to be allowed to do some ancillary stuff for your likeness. Now, maybe I'm wrong. And, but I, I really don't think that's what it's going to be. Um, I'm pretty sure it's just for smaller stuff, but we'll get back more on this next week. And I think Robert's got some good points. People talk about athletes being exploited at the NCAA level. And it's very few athletes are actually being exploited. Maybe some of the top revenue people in football, but the whole NCAA system essentially subsidizes the minor sports. So football and basketball, the sports bringing in the money, who are they subsidizing? They're subsidizing the rest of the system. So maybe even like the last guy on the football team, he's getting a subsidy. He may not get a scholarship, but like the field hockey player, the cross country runner, the track runner. Oh, wait, the LSU track coach, Dennis Shaver, he's now getting $370,000 a year guaranteed opportunity to make $260,000 more. There's a threat in that and let's run. In essence, like he's being subsidized by the basketball player and the football player. Now, I mean, I guess schools aren't going to have to pay out any more money. So that subsidy is still going to exist. And I think this is going to be a way to let athletes make a little extra money. But I'm pretty sure that like Zion Williamson can't sign a full net fledged Nike contract and, and still compete for for Duke. Why Why not, though? It says they, they're allowing them to profit off of their names, images, and likenesses. That's what you're allowing. And, and when you're signing an endorsement contract with a country, company, you're allowing them to profit off of your name. Like you're selling the rights to your name. You're saying, I'm Zion Williamson. I'm now a walking billboard for Adidas or Nike or whatever. You have the rights to me. That shouldn't be the rule because that's going to be too ripe for, for, for fraud. I mean, you can have a booster paying them. If they want to sell their own t-shirts with their own thing on or something like that, go ahead. But this is the devil's going to be in the details here. We need to see the details. It's kind of pointless to be talking about this until we have the details. But I, I kind of, I don't know. I'm just not, I feel like the point of college is not people like a oh, free market, free market. I'm like, that's not the point of college. It's ironic to me that the college is, is full of all these very leftist, left-wing, liberal-leaning professors. Well, we subsidize the English department. We subsidize the poetry department. They're not necessarily making money. The point of college is to educate people. And I feel like supporting you know, all of these people, all of these athletes is great. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased as a former cross-country coach. So I, I just, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, like, this might be a good thing, like, to let them have a little bit of more control. But again, I think the real problem should have been, okay, if you're good enough at a high school to go play minor league sports or even make the majors, go ahead and do it. If not, you can come to college for a minimum of three years. One last thing. John's talking about the shoe contracts. Zion Williamson is the perfect example of this. This guy was not exploited by going to Duke. He went to Duke for one year. His brand is now huge. Puma, Nike, all these shoe companies are massively bidding for him. He's going to be making $15, $20 million a year off a shoe endorsement. Why? Because he went to Duke and built up his brand. College is an investment in the future. There's lots of students that go to college, they take on debt, so they get out in the world and make more money. Zion Williamson went to Duke for one year. His brand is massive, and now he's getting a shoe contract. If he was playing in the NBA D League last year instead of at Duke, nobody would give an F about who this guy was, and there would not be a, he would not be making $20 million a year on a shoe contract like he will be now. Great point, Robert. Tom Brady doesn't deserve to have 
any NFL salary because he has used the NFL to build his brand as a quarterback. And that's the only reason why he's making money with Under Armour and his sponsorship contracts. So all NFL players should no longer be able to take a salary because they the NFL, they use it to build their brand. I think it's a ridiculous argument, Robert. It can be a mutually beneficial partnership. Yes, did Duke help him make money? Sure. But he also made, helped them make a lot of money. People watching Duke games solely for Zion Williamson. I mean, to argue that he wasn't exploited in some degree, I think you know it's a mutually there is a mutually beneficial partnership, but he deserves a piece of that. I mean, John, I think just on both sides, we need to discuss this accurately and to act like most college athletes are exploited is not true. I never said that. Never said that. I know. I agree. But I think most people at the public at large don't discuss it. It's like, oh, all these college athletes are being screwed over. And it's really not true. It's probably the athlete who probably gets most exploited is like the college star at like Florida who's a really good quarterback or something and never can go pro, you know, isn't good enough to catch on the next league. So they sort of put in, what do they get out of it? They get a $75,000 a year scholarship, essentially. They make three hundred grand, and the open market for somebody like that might be quarter million, $500,000 a year. So those are the ones lose out. But the field hockey player, the women's soccer player, the men's soccer player, those guys are probably coming out way ahead. The track runner coming out way ahead. It's a few athletes. And so I think most people are, because this law changed and even the NCAA came around and it's sort of your viewpoint that like, Hey, can't we let athletes? I don't think it's going to be full fledged pro like Zion Williams and signing an endorsement contract. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it's like, Hey, can't they like do some stuff on the side, make a little extra money and still be college athletes. And I think I thought that's where they, where they were going with this. And maybe it's going to go even more full fledged, but Hey, because, John, if, if there's no rule in place, what's the difference between this? Why don't we just start paying him in college? That's why you just get rid of this rule. You get rid of the rule. Let them go pro out of high school. If they want to go to college, they signed up for the amateur system, and they can go. They, they, they go. I mean, John, are high school athletes being exploited? At what level? What about junior high? I mean, at, like, to me, it was a very simple thing. If you want to go to college, you go to college. If you don't want to go to college, you go pro. The only reason they couldn't go pro is because the NBA and the NFL wouldn't let them. That's not the NCAA's problem. That's the NBA and the NFL's problem. But you're ignoring – Programs like Ohio State football, they bring in millions of dollars of revenue every year. And they're why do people go to Ohio State football? It's for the players. I mean, yes, it's for the Ohio State jersey on the front, but that wouldn't mean anything if they didn't have a top-tier team every year. So those guys aren't getting anything. And I don't think it's as simple as just saying like they're, – They're getting a free college education. Okay, they're getting, they're getting something, yes, but they're not getting – they're not seeing anything from the TV contracts that Ohio State signs because of them from the – ticket revenue that Ohio State gets from the bowl revenue, none of that goes to the athletes and those are the ones who deserve it. So I'm, I'm not saying it's a simple fix. And yes, I think if you start paying all these football and basketball players, it could have devastating effects for the people like track and field and gymnastics and all these other like non-revenue sports. That, that's my value point. I think it's better to help everyone out. Maybe a few people. Uh, hey, it's like taxing the rich. People talking about a wealth tax. You tax the very rich. You tell you the very rich basketball players are getting hurt. You know, whatever. John's probably for these subsidies for these multi-billion-dollar stadiums. Like, let's build a let's build a Patriot Stadium because they win and uh, they bring some. Hell no, I I don't support that. And also, Robert Kraft funded the. Uh, from what I've read, Robert Kraft funded Gillette Stadium all by himself. So uh... the implications for the non-revenue sports could be huge because if eventually if we go to a system where football players are paid, there's going to be less money in the athletic department. Essentially, now we're subsidizing the all the assistant athletic directors, all the support personnel, and we're, you know, you're also all the non-revenue sports. We have to start paying basketball and football players. 
it could be devastating for track. Track scholarships would go away. Track would still exist, but kids wouldn't get on scholarship to go run track at most schools. I mean, it just wouldn't happen, right? Like, we can have a football team or we can have 12 guys on a track scholarship. I think most people are going to keep the football team. All right, guys. Well, we'll talk about this issue more as it develops, but I think that's about it for this edition of the podcast. We've got a great weekend of racing. We've also got the U.S. 5K champs uh, in Central Park on Saturday morning. That'll be great. Actually, do we want to hit on Valencia real quick? Yomif Kajelcha getting the win, Sifan Hassan missing the world record, Robert shaking his head. That's really all you need to know. There weren't any world records that fell. Yomif Kajelcha did run 59.05, though. It's pretty For a guy who ran a 3.47 mile in March to come out and run... <laughs> Uh, 59.05 in the half marathon in October is just phenomenal. But uh, yeah, sorry. At this point, if you're not breaking the world, he didn't even break 59 minutes. So is it really that impressive? Yeah, it still is. But anyway, that yeah, New York, we've talked a lot about that. We'll have plenty of coverage on the homepage of letsrun.com this upcoming week. Uh, I will be there. Robert will be there. Weldon will be there. It'll be a Let's Run reunion. You know, it's going to be a, a fun week. Yes. Any suggestions on bars? Maybe we have a Let's Run meetup. Also, I think we need like intro music or something. Anybody want to come up with that? I'll pay you. Email me, wejo at letsrun.com. I think we got to take this podcast to the next level after New York. But John, looking forward to seeing you later today. Robert, see you on Saturday. And should be a great New York City Marathon. The only marathon in the U.S. on ESPN. So that'll be cool. So fans, you got no excuse for not watching this one. Yeah, ESPN too. Sunday in New York, always a special day.